The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. This is Michelle Jawanjo coming to you as a member of the Leslie Marshall family. Always great to be with you on this lovely Thursday afternoon. Again, this is your host for the next three hours. I hope you stay with me, Michelle Jawanjo. Listen, I love hearing from you. And so if you don't mind, why don't you give us a call or follow the conversation online? Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall, um, or you can follow me on Twitter at Michelle, M I C H E L E. Jawando, J-A-W-A-N-D-O. And if you want to go ahead and give us a call, you can reach out, 888-653-8543. So much <laughs> news today. Um, we have an action-packed show for you uh, today. Um, I'm really excited that one of uh, my mentors um, and someone who is so well-respected on Capitol Hill, um, none other than Congressman G.K. Butterfield from North Carolina is going to join us on the show today. We're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in North Carolina writ large. Um, you may have heard, but Governor McCrory signed a bill in law this week um, with actually bipartisan support from the legislature um, that would basically shield um, camera footage from officers' body cameras. Um, and as you know, we're, we as a country are still reeling from the deaths um, that went viral this over the last week and a half of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. So in so many ways, this seems like we're going back in time as opposed to forward. Uh, really excited. Also joining the show, we have um, Marcella um, Howell, who is the head of the Black Women's uh, National Black Women's Reproductive Justice Agenda. She has worked with me on a number of issues, so we're going to be talking about reproductive justice issues, among others. We have Igor Volsky, a friend of the show. We'll be talking the latest news, and as you know, none other than Indiana Governor Mike Pence um, has rumored to be um, selected as the vice president selection of uh, Donald Trump. Um, and, and what is expected to formally happen this there's this afternoon so maybe happening folks as we speak Donald Trump is selected to call Governor Mike Pence um, and ask him to sign on as his vice presidential candidate running mate um, 
as you know, uh, or you may not know, and one of the things that we'll try to do before the next um, politics hour is give you a little bit of a background about Governor Pence. Uh, He's a former member of Congress. I was actually there when he was also there on the House side. Um, So it will be an interesting two weeks. You know, the RNC is next week and we the RNC convention taking place in Cleveland, Ohio, and the Democratic National Convention taking place the week after in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So a lot to discuss, but let's start the conversation. Um, again, I am really, really happy to have joining me uh, for the next few minutes while I have this very, very busy lady, um, none other than Marcella Howell, who is the strategic, uh, the executive director for in our, the executive director and founder. I always make sure I get that in because I know the blood, sweat and tears that went into doing that of in our own voice, the national black woman's reproductive justice agenda. And she tweets at black women's with an S R J Marcella. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you very much, Michelle. It's always, always wonderful, wonderful to have and have you here with us. Um, we were last together for our audience um, at a really a, a wonderful day. And I think for a lot of people in the RJ movement, we don't always have an opportunity to say that. Um, but it's true. Right before the Supreme Court, after the whole woman's health decision came down earlier in July, um, we were able to, to lock arms. But Marcella has been working in this kind of space of advocating for women's rights rights, reproductive health, justice, and women's empowerment for over 40 years. So, Marcella, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with the um, agenda, why don't you kind of give our listeners a sense of some of the amazing work that you've been doing and your leadership and what has meant for so many people? Well, um, in our own voice, the National Black Women's Reproductive Justice Agenda is only a few years old, um, but it came out of a national state partnership with seven black women's reproductive justice organizations that are based across the country. And we came together primarily to lift up the voices of black women and the leadership of black women around reproductive health rights and justice. Um, A lot of the really bad laws that get passed around, both at a national level and at a state level, impact, primarily impact, low-income women who are predominantly women of color, young women, and immigrant women, and very often our, our voices have not been heard. And so in our own voice is intentionally named to say we can speak for ourselves and here is what we think. And some of the work that we've been working on, for one thing, with whole women's health, um, the Supreme Court case, we actually did file an amicus brief on that that primarily looked at the impact of these really oppressive laws in Texas on black women being able to access reproductive health. And the laws were, as you know, but now the Supreme Court has done us this great service as they should have <laughs> and, re, and, you know, and remove these you know these laws as being unconstitutional but the laws basically did close down a number of clinics in in texas 
and some of them in black communities, so that women then had to travel a distance to get to um, health care, not just abortion health care, but other kinds of health care as well. And so what we see now with the whole women's health decision is that what the, the court really said was that politicians couldn't just manufacture these laws um, under the disguise of saying that it was for the safety of women, when indeed it did, they did the exact opposite. The problem we have now, of course, is a lot of those clinics were closed. I mean, the clinics went from That's having right. 42 clinics in Texas to having 19. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you have to close up these clinics is that you lose your leases and your staff ends up getting jobs elsewhere. So now in order to even reopen, that's going to be a long process as people, you know, people who run the clinics have to now find other places to to locate them. They've got to hire new staff. So it's not like we went from the 19 clinics that were still open right up to back up to the 42. We've got a long way to go to get back up to those number of clinics in, in Texas. That's right. And, and in other states as well. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that our listeners may not be aware of that basically since about 2000, um, you've seen elected officials all over the country pass over 339 new laws that basically make access to abortion hard to get. And in some place, um, you're literally traveling hundreds of miles for that type of care. Exactly. I mean, in Mississippi, for instance, there is only one clinic in Mississippi Mm -hmm. that provides abortion care for the Mm -hmm. entire state. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, and so so you have not just these kind of laws that were against clinics that, you know, that basically said clinics had to become surgical centers and doctors who performed abortions had to get admitting privileges at hospitals. But it, but there are also laws that deal with waiting periods, fairly long waiting periods, that that mandate that you have these in-person counseling sessions where doctors have to read to you mandated language, some of which is Medically incorrect. incorrect. <laughs> yes, incorrect. Um, that the state mandates that these doctors have to read to you right, as part of right. your counseling session. There are things like vaginal ultrasounds in some states, just invasive kind of procedures. Right. And they're all designed to stop, to try to put up barriers to women right. to access abortion care. So, and, Marcella, when we come back from the break, um, one of the things that I would love for you to just give our listeners is a sense of where we go next. Because I think you started to kind of really lay out and illustrate that there are challenges to ramp back up. And I think our listeners would be interested in figuring out what that is and where you see the future of the movement going. You're listening to Michelle Jawando. This is The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Marshall Show. 
Marshall show. Oh my goodness, I love that song so much. Um, I it could be because I love Lenny Kravitz, and I've told my husband if I ever meet Lenny Kravitz, I can't make any promises. But so glad to be with you on this Thursday. <laughs> I know you got to represent for my husband. He's a good one. Um, this is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall show. Um, if you want to join in the conversation and I hope to hear from you, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Um, and I am happy to pick up our uh, conversation with Marcella Howell, who is the founder and executive director of In Our Own Voice, the National Black Women's Reproductive Justice Agenda. She tweets at Black Women's RJ. Um, Marcella, so before the break, uh, you know, we started to talk about the fact that, you know, many of these clinics that were in some ways the only health care that many um, commu- many women and particularly low income um, and, and uh, women of color had access to, um, that these were some of those only places for them in their communities. Um, and I'm just really excited um, that thank goodness the Supreme Court did the right thing and what many are saying is the most consequential decision um, in the court's history since Roe v. Wade to kind of reaffirm that, you know, politicians who are using the farce um, that they were doing things on behalf of women's health, that the Supreme Court saw through that and said it was, in fact, an undue burden um, and and that they these laws couldn't no longer stand. But that doesn't negate the fact that we're at a place where many folks have a lot of work to do to get back running in their communities. Exactly. I mean, as I said, it's difficult to restart up. It's not going to happen overnight, but it Mm -hmm. will happen. Um, But it, it means going out, finding new locations, getting leases, finding new staff, so it's not as if we're going to go from the 19 that we that are currently in Texas back up to the 42 that were there before the the law was passed in Texas. So it mm-hmm. will take a little time, but um, hopefully those who you know ran the clinics before will be able to get many of them back up um, running sometimes fairly fairly quickly. That's right. But but it, but what's interesting is this law that was in Texas, HB2, there are similar laws in 22 other states, most of them in the South, that impact, of course, black women quite heavily. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not just these types of laws, but it's all the other kinds of laws that place barriers in front of women trying to access what is a constitutional right that they have. And it's not even just the laws, but it's also the economy, that the, the cost of, of services. All of those things impact low-income women. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have the Hyde Amendment, which restricts using Medicaid funding to cover abortion care, except in extreme circumstances. Mm-hmm. And you have a number of states that have state laws that are similar to the Hyde. In fact, only 15 states in the country actually use their own state money to cover abortion care care so if you don't live in those 15 states you basically have to figure out figure where out to get the own. funding to get access to you know to actually get abortion services mm-hmm. 
Now, you know, this might be taking a step backwards, but it occurred to me as I was speaking to kind of a a young, uh, one of our young interns today um, who asked about why do we use the term reproductive justice? Um, And I thought, particularly in light of the last week, I love for you to, I would love to hear your explanation. I think I've heard it a few times, but I think it would be great for our listeners to understand that why um, the affirmation of those two words together, kind of what that has meant and what that's meant for the broader movement. Well, reproductive justice, I should say, reproductive justice was a phrase that was coined in 1994 by 12 black women who were meeting in Chicago after they came back from an international conference. And the thing, and and looked at all the different kinds of intersections of a woman's life, Mm -hmm. that it's not just about getting access to an to an abortion, but it's also the right to have a child. And if you look at the history of black and brown women in this country where there were actually state-sanctioned sterilization going on, the right to have a child was very, very important. But the right not to have a child also says that you, you deserve the right to control your own body. And then the third component of that is the right to nurture the children you have in safe and healthy environments. And when you look at some of the things that have happened over the last year in terms of young black men and women dying at the hands of the police, then you have to, that idea of nurturing your own children in a safe and healthy environment becomes very prominent. But reproductive justice looks at the intersections of a woman's life, not just her womb. It looks at the economic issues. It looks at how she, um, her gender identification. It looks at issues dealing with um, environmental circumstances, where she lives, that is, if, does, is her neighborhood, her community impacted by environmental circumstances. It looks at all of these things that impact the physical, mental, spiritual, and economic well-being of women and girls as they attempt to achieve full human rights. And the phrase was specifically coined because it was too much of what we were looking at historically was about a term called pro-choice, which was very much about privacy mm-hmm. and abortion. Mm-hmm. And when you work in communities of color, communities of color, women of color see abortion as one component in health care. Right. It is not the only thing. So we approach it from that sort of intersection of all the things that are, are part of your life. And that's really what um, reproductive justice is about. Marcella Howell you are wonderful and amazing and I will always do what I can to lift up your voice everywhere I go Marcella Howe on the Leslie Marshall Show thanks for joining and we'll be right back after the break with Congressman G.K. Butterfield of North Carolina this is the Leslie Marshall Show Good afternoon, 
And welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you um, and love hearing from you. So if you want to join in the conversation, please go ahead and give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Really excited about um, our next guest, namely because he is someone who is ubiquitous. He is everywhere all the time and kind of in so many ways embodies the definition of public service. Like, you know, when you're a little kid and you think about running for office and what a politician should do and how they care about their community, you think about Congressman G.K. Butterfield of North Carolina. Congressman, it's an honor and privilege to have you join us on the show today. Thank you, Michelle, and good afternoon. So, Congressman Butterfield, for our listeners who may not know, represents the great people of the 1st Congressional District in North Carolina, and he's been in that seat since 2004. Um, I have a lot of love for him because he is also the father of an amazing friend of mine, Um, but I love him in his own right. Okay, Congressman, we we, we love you separately. Absolutely. Um, But, but, you know, you've, you've done everything from um, serving as a judge to being an elected official and um, being an attorney representing so many people in the great state of North Carolina. But it seems that North Carolina has been in the news recently for so many reasons um, and a state that I have adopted uh, by virtue of heading a law school down there um, seems like something's happening there. And, you know, I would just love for you to just tell people whether it's this latest bill that was signed by Governor McCrory that would prevent people from access to body cam videos Um how is your state reacting to the kind of effects of the last week of Alton Sterling and the Philando Castile and then the Dallas shooting? What's happening? How's your state reacting and how are you dealing with it? Well, first of all, thank you for letting me be a part of your program this afternoon. It's been a busy two weeks for us, but uh, we are finally coming up for air and just it's a good time for me to come on and just share a few words with, with your listeners. Um, I am the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, and not only do I represent North Carolina, but also represent 46 members, African-American members here in Congress. And collectively, uh, we represent 30 million people. So we are a political force, or should be a political force, uh, here on, on Capitol Hill. And one of the issues that we are vitally concerned about is the issue that we've been hearing about for the last two weeks in particular, and for the last few years uh, overall, and that is the whole whole subject of gun violence. Uh, 30,000 people each year get murdered uh, in our country with use by, by the use of handguns. Uh, far ahead of any other country on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, 30% of the, of the mass shootings in, in the world uh, uh, happen right here in our country. We're only 5% of the world, but 30% of the shootings happened uh, right, right here in our country. And so we've got to do something about it. We cannot continue to have innocent Americans shot down in, in, in our communities. And so we've got to do something about it. And, and Democrats in Congress have been, have been working overtime <clears throat> trying to convince Republicans to sit with us and to have hearings and, and to pass legislation that will, first of all, uh, deny the, the right to anyone who's on the no-fly list mm-hmm. uh, to purchase a firearm. We have a no-fly list in this country, and people who are bad people who are suspected of being a terrorist uh, are on the list, and they cannot fly an airplane. 
And those same people should not be able to purchase a firearm. And so the Republicans won't even talk with us about no fly, no buy. Yeah. But in addition to that, we want background checks. That's 90% right. of the American right. people want background checks. They refuse to talk with us whatsoever. Not even to mention the, the despicable violence by police officers against African Americans in communities all across the country. And so we have a crisis. And the Black Caucus is, is uh, rallying our supporters all across the country. We're going to have a press conference tonight on the Capitol steps. Uh, we are told that several thousand people will be coming to, to hear our press conference and hear us talk about this crisis, this emergency that we have. North so, Carolina, you asked specifically about North Carolina. <laughs> you know, I've lived in North Carolina all of my life, and, and my state, compared to most other states, has been a progressive state. Mm -hmm. uh, but since the Republicans took charge of the legislature and the governor's mansion, uh, we have we have taken a step back, and it is absolutely embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, from from the vote from voting rights to to uh, unemployment compensation to to benefits that uh, that recipients receive, everything is being cut back. And now we've got the HB two issue where they want to discriminate uh, on people uh, <clears throat> against people based on their sex, sexual orientation. And now, just last week, they want to keep uh, videotape. Uh, videos from police shootings out of the hands of of the media and 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 the public. Mm -hmm. uh, my state is going backwards, and I'm embarrassed about it. And the only way we're going to change that is to have the largest turnout in November uh, in in the election. And That's right. Let, and let the people speak. You know, I think most people don't recognize you. You spoke eloquently about the issue of of gun violence in our country. The reality is, more than thirty thousand um, Americans are killed with guns every year. Um, and in the three years since the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary, a child under the age of twelve was killed by intentional or accidental gunfire every other day. Um, and as I look at, you know, my three little girls, five, three, and two, I know that we just got to do better. I, why has, you know, you, you and, a member, and a number of members of the Congressional Black Caucus led by uh, Congressman John Lewis and yourself and others demonstrated and had a old-fashioned sit-in on the floor of the House? I can't tell you, I was, as a former staffer, House staffer, I was never prouder to just break regular order and see some action happening. But it's like we're sometimes talking against each other. I, I cannot believe that House Republicans are seeing the same numbers, seeing the crisis that we're seeing in our communities, and still not feeling the impetus to do something. Well, I'm so proud of, of my Congressional Black Caucus and the Democratic Caucus for staging the sit-in back on June 22nd. It was spontaneous. It was unrehearsed. Republicans had no idea that we were going to do it. And just spontaneously on, on that uh, morning, we, we all sat down on the floor and that's where we stayed for more than 24 hours. Uh, and that made a powerful statement to the Republicans and, and to the world. And so finally, last week, three of us met the Speaker Ryan. Wow. And we, okay. we, we said to the Speaker, look, uh, we, we've got to have some movement. We've got to have action. We cannot continue to have police officers shoot down African-American men uh, and on streets across America. We cannot continue to have black, white, and brown citizens being murdered. Uh, by each other in our mm -hmm. communities. We've mm -hmm. got to have a sensible approach, sensible approach to gun violence. And so uh, what, what Speaker Ryan did was to put together, uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't convene a hearing. Right. Uh, what he did was put together a working group, quote-unquote, uh, of six Democrats and six Republicans. And these 12 people are going to start talking with each other to 
see if there's common ground between Democrats and Republicans. And right. so I appointed yeah. the six uh, uh, African-Americans who are on the committee, and, and of course, Speaker Ryan and, and Chairman Goodlatte uh, appointed the six Republicans. Okay. But at least we're beginning the dialogue, and hopefully that would produce some results. I mean, sometimes just even the power of the con- of a conversation can move the needle forward. And, and I don't think so many of our listeners, we have listeners from all across the country, are even aware um, that sometimes still in Congress, people can talk and have a conversation and you got to believe things can get done. Otherwise, what are we doing it for? So, sure. Congressman, we're going we're gonna to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to talk to you about two things. One. We've seen the the footage of the recent police shootings, um, and I will tell you, uh, people are upset, they're angry, and I think young people are feeling a type of uh, cynicism um, and hopelessness, and, I, and I'd love for you to talk about what you're saying out there um, and what are you saying we can do about the issue of police brutality. And then, obviously, uh, Governor Mike Pence was one of your former colleagues. The rumor is he's going going to be the vice president pick would love your two cents on that sir (laughs) we'll be right back after the break this is the leslie marshall show you're listening to the leslie marshall show truth for all sides of the spectrum 8886 leslie This is Michelle Jawando uh, coming to you on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be a part of the Leslie Marshall Show family coming to you every Thursday. Love to hear from you. Give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Also join the conversation online at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. Honored to have with us uh, none other than Congressman G.K. Butterfield, Chair of the Congressional Black caucus and also the representative for the people of the first congressional district of North Carolina. He tweets at GK Butterfield um, and you can definitely follow him there. So Congressman, before the break, um, you know, we started the conversation about the last two weeks have been incredibly difficult. Um, You know, first you literally went to bed grieving the death of Alton Sterling in Louisiana. um, And then when you were woke, got the news about Philando Castile, um, and both of these kind of videos that went viral because you saw um, their murder. And then the very next day, you had the Dallas shooting. And I think the president did um, the best job he could possibly do under really difficult circumstances. But the American people are definitely feeling um the the terror and the the in some ways the cynicism about can we fix these problems that in some way feel intractable well michelle last week was probably one of the most difficult weeks of my uh, congressional life it it was it was very hard uh you're right we we, we saw the, the senseless killing down in baton rouge and then the next day we saw what happened in minnesota and then we were trying to to work through that, and then this assassin got in a building in Dallas and killed five police officers and, and wounded nine more, a total of 14 people shot within the span of a minute. Uh, and so that illustrates more than anything why we need to have 
a serious conversation in this country, not just a conversation, but action on gun violence. Mm. Uh, it's a shame that Republicans left town today uh, for a seven-week recess. Our members are still on the floor right now uh, mm. giving one-minute speeches about the importance of, of legislation. Uh, and so what happened last week should be a wake-up call uh, to all Americans that this gun violence issue is real. It's not a politically motivated issue. Uh, we've got to, we've got to disable uh, those who are incapable of handling a firearm to possess them. Uh, that means those who are mentally ill and those who are would-be terrorists and those people who simply cannot possess a gun. Uh, we, we are not opposed in, in the Democratic caucus to uh, Second Amendment rights. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that machine guns and, 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 and high-capacity weapons uh, mm -hmm. should not be on the streets of America. They need to be on the battlefield and not on our streets. And then uh, police misconduct. You called it police brutality. By, by any name, it's, it's nothing but murder. Mm -hmm. uh, Any time a police officer uses his, his revolver uh, to kill an innocent citizen, even a citizen who has had a dust up with the law, uh, but to kill that citizen uh, as a first resort without trying to use other means uh, to restrain the individual is, is a criminal act. And those two cases last week, Sterling and Castile, both of those individuals were completely innocent of any any serious misconduct on their part. It was simply an overreaction on the part of the police. They took the law into their own hands. Mm. They killed these individuals, and now they must be held accountable. Is, there, is it time for a conversation about the re-looking um, and examining whether or not we should be using deadly force the way that we do in this country. I mean, when you look at our stats compared to other industrialized nation of our size, um, we are outliers in every respect when it comes to using deadly force. Absolutely. I mean, Mr. Sterling and Castile were the 114th and 115th black men to be killed this year alone. Like, is it time for that conversation? It is past time for the conversation. We've got to train. We've got to retrain our officers in the use of deadly force. Deadly force cannot be used as a first resort, even when a citizen is out of line. Deadly force is the last resort. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've got to invest federal dollars into these police departments. Uh, we've got to get their attention. The bad cops need to be uh, dismissed and, and, and sent on their way. Uh, but those cops who are, who are reasonably good folks, uh, we need to, to train them and retrain them on how and when to use deadly force. It is, it is past time for us to have that conversation. And I believe if we don't do that, we're going to sadly uh, continue to see uh, this type of, of, of conduct on the part of police officers. We've got to rein in uh, these rogue police officers who are misusing uh, their authority. You should know that black men are only 6% of the population in, in our country, but yet they are 40% of those who are killed uh, by police officers when they are unarmed. Put it a different way. <clears throat> of all the men who are unarmed in this country and killed by the police, 40% of those are African-American, while they're only, they are only 6% of the population, two and a half times more likely to be killed than a white person who is unarmed. Uh, we've got a crisis, ladies and gentlemen, and the way you respond to a crisis is that we must do our job here in, in the legislative branch, but, but citizens all across our country must rise up uh, in a, in a nonviolent way, of course, mm -hmm. uh, but they must rise up and they must be heard and they must demand 
just as uh, many organizations, Black Lives Matter and other groups, just like they are, demanding uh, that we that we uh, change the laws and, and make it uh, safer in those communities. And so my point is that legislative action is only brought about when there is public opinion. That's right. And pressure. Who, yes. And those who are listening to this program, you're part of the public, and we need you to speak up and speak out and demand action. And we need for you to participate in the upcoming election. I'm not going to get terribly political on this phone call, but... <laughs> Anyone who's lived in America for the last few months will know that this is probably the most important election, election. of our lifetime. We've got to participate in, in, a, in a real way. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one political opening. You know, the rumors are starting to come out that uh, Indiana governor and your former colleague in the House, Governor Mike Pence, um, is going to be selected as the vice president for Donald Trump. What say you? <laughs> I, I knew Mike Pence when he served in the House of Representatives. He was a very conservative member. He was not, uh, you know, to the far, far, far right, but he mm -hmm. was certainly an ultra-conservative. Uh, when he served in Congress, I don't know his record as governor uh, mm -hmm. very much in Indiana, uh, but I'm sure it's going to be a lively uh, debate between Democrats and Republicans in the fall, uh, because I think when you put these two tickets together, uh, it will be no comparison as to which one is superior. We've, we've got to be involved in this election, ladies and gentlemen. African-American community, the progressive community must be involved in this election. The consequences are too great. That's right. You have been listening to Congressman G.K. Butterfield of North Carolina. You can join him and a number of other Democrats on the West Lawn of the Capitol this evening at 730. They're going to be talking about the way forward, lighting the way forward on gun violence. Congressman, it has been an honor and privilege to have you join the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. One of the things that I want to make sure that people recognize from the congressman's words is the fact that our power to do something, if you are upset about what you've been seeing, um, if you feel like we need to be doing more, you have an opportunity to do that. Um, I think disproportionately, a lot of times we looked at our elected officials and we say they have the power, they got to do something, we have a problem and it's up to them. It's not just up to them. We have a role to play, whether or not that is protest, whether or not that is calling your elected officials, whether or not that's running for office yourself. Um, there is something to be done and there's a role for each of us to play. And, I, and, and sometimes I think a lot of people think that if you don't have um, some elected official or some leader doing it, that it can't get done. Um, and that's just completely wrong. And so, you know, as we kind of reflect on what the congressman was able to share even on today, um, I would just really advise everyone to think about the role they're playing. Do you have a plan for voting on Election Day? Because if you are don't have a plan, if you don't know, are you going to go before work? Are you going to go after work? Are you bringing a friend? Have you registered? You got to figure out all of that um, and and do something. And again, I tell people voting is one piece of it, but there's a whole lot you can do. Um, you're upset about what you're seeing. Follow organize, get involved with an organization that's working on the problems in your community. 
Um, This has been a difficult two weeks, but one of the things that I recognize is that now more than ever, I am empowered and inspired to do more, to make change happen in my community. Why? Because I can't wait for anybody else. I got to do it now. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break with Susanna from ACLU of North Carolina to give us a little bit more insight about what's happening down there. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando coming to you every Thursday on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great, always great to be a part of the Leslie Marshall Show family. If you want to join in the conversation, and I hope you do, you can go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. So this week, um, you know, many of our listeners know we've been following the incidents in Louisiana, Baton Rouge, um, and in uh, Falls Point, Minnesota, and then subsequently the death. Shooting, but one piece of the conversation, and and normally I'm I'm sure this news would have made it um, to the national headlines, but so much has been going on. Many of you are familiar with Governor Pratt McCrory. Uh, He is the governor who recently made news for signing into law what many people said was continuing to enshrine hate, the quote-unquote bathroom bill in North Carolina that prevented the use of public facilities, among other things, um, for transgender Americans. Well, he is back in the news again as Governor McCrory this week signed controversial legislation that regulated the release of recordings from police body and dashboard cameras. What's interesting is that part of the reason we have been able to have this national conversation around police misconduct um, and uh, some of the systemic racism that is appearing in our criminal justice system is because of these video recordings. And yet, what McCrory did essentially would take us completely backwards. Now, I'm excited about our next two guests because they're going to give us a little bit of sense of what's happening in North Carolina writ large, but also a little bit more about this bill. So joining me is Susanna Birdsong. She's the policy counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union of North Carolina. Uh, She works on the organization's statewide legislative and policy program. Um, She has earned her bachelor's and Masters of Social Work from one of my alma maters, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Go Heels! There you go. Had to get that in there. Uh, But while she was in law school, she also authored and published a comment addressing the discriminatory treatment of LGBT couples and adoption proceedings. So she's been in this space for a long time. Susanna, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. And if you're interested in following her on Twitter and engaging in conversation, uh, you can find her on Twitter at Birdsong, B-I-R-D-S-O-N-G-S-U-S-A-N-N-A. And also joining us um, is a friend to CAP, and particularly uh, the team in our legal progress is Chris 
Chris Fitzsimon, who is the director of North Carolina Policy Watch. Uh, Chris is the founder and the director of the North Carolina C- North Carolina Policy Watch is a progressive public policy think tank that is a special project of the North Carolina Justice Center. Um, he is also uh, also uh, hosts a weekly radio news magazine that airs on a number of network stations. Chris, welcome to oh, and also a Tar Heel. What? How did I almost miss that, Chris? What? How have we not had that conversation before? Uh, also a heel. Chris, welcome to the Leslie Marsha Show. Well, I'm happy to be with you. So, Susanna, our listeners, we have listeners who are in from all over the country. Can you give us a little bit of a background about how we got here um, and a little bit more about the bill? Sure. Um, so HB 972 came out of a study committee that met over the interim, so between last year's legislative session and this one, um, this year's session in North Carolina. But it's, you know, an idea that has been floating around our state and many others for at least a couple of years now, this idea of regulating access to police body camera footage. Um, So it didn't come out of a specific incident or a case um, in North Carolina, but you know, we're seeing it as part of this kind of broader conversation around access to the footage. And what the bill now law does is um, say that it kind of breaks down if uh, different treatment for those who are the subjects of the recordings versus the general public. So if you are the subject of the recording, uh, if you are someone who's portrayed on the footage um, and or your personal representative, so a family member or an attorney, you can go to the police department under HB 972 and ask to see um, body camera footage that depicts you. Um, And the police department under HB 972 has full discretion to decide whether or not they're actually going to disclose that footage to you. And disclose doesn't mean give you a copy of the footage. It simply means let you view that footage in the police department. Um, Now, if we're talking about public release, if you are a member of the public, if you are a media outlet, If you are the subject of the recording who wants to obtain an actual copy of that recording, or if you're the police department yourself and you want to release that footage to the public, you now, under HB 972, have to go to court and receive a court order in order to do so. I mean, Susanna, first off, As you were going through the process, two things jumped out at me. One, we are asking citizens, reporters, um, and the American people, people in the great state of North Carolina, if they just want to find out what happened, they have to spend money to go to court, get a date to be seen before a judge, and hope that they're granted an order because there's no guarantee that they will. And then secondly, if you are someone who is portrayed or a representative, if you're actually in the footage, you have to hope that law enforcement would agree to show you the footage. I mean, it just sounds ridiculous from a process point of view to even have this happen. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we're thinking about kind of the 
broader purpose here and in, in what we know about the benefit, potential benefit of police body cameras, people really think about them as they should, as uh, tools to promote accountability and transparency and to really build trust between police and the communities that they serve. But that's only going to happen if someone other than the police has a minimum guarantee of access to mm-hmm. the footage that's recorded. And otherwise, you know, I've talked to a lot of people um, this week, and as the bill was sort of moving through the legislative process, who are really concerned that now that, you know, when HB 972 goes into effect in October, um, you know, police body cameras are just going to become another surveillance tool that police can deploy in communities rather than something that is actually going to promote transparency. transparency and accountability. Yeah. Chris, so this seems like this is a part of a broader pattern that we seem from McCrory and just kind of the type of legislation, but this was interesting because it was also bipartisan. Yeah, it, it was bipartisan. It was interesting to me. Um, Susanna just used the word transparency, which is really what's at stake here. Um, interestingly, the governor, uh, when he signed the bill and said again yesterday that this was all done in the interest of transparency, um, which is another pattern of Governor McCrory's, which is when he says something that is almost diametrically opposed <laughs> to what he actually does. And we've seen that on HB2. We've seen it on education spending. We've seen it on a variety of uh Voting rights legislation, we've seen it. Uh, that's, that, that's one of the more troubling patterns is how you can call what Savannah just described uh, as doing anything for transparency is really beyond me. You know, we're, we're going to get ready to go to break here. But, Chris, what I would love for you to maybe talk to our listeners when we return is what I'm starting to see is this kind of troubling pattern that's starting to emerge in North Carolina. Once the legislator switched and McCrory came into office, what was formerly a very progressive southern state, the legislation has changed completely. And then some of the effects of that in the state, what that has meant, and also what's the next thing that will be under attack. You're listening to Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm happy to be joined with my guest, Susanna Birdsong, Policy Counsel at the ACLU of North Carolina, and Chris Fitzsimon, Founder and Executive Director of NC Policy Watch. So, Chris, before the break, um, oh, and if you want to follow them on Twitter, and you sure and should do, you can find Chris at Fitz, F-I-T. F-I-T-Z-S-I-M-O-N. And Susanna is at Birdsong, Susanna, S-U-S-A-N-N-A. Chris, before the break, we we started to talk a little bit about kind of the changing guard in North Carolina, both in legislation and subsequently um, what ha- was once considered a beacon of progressivism in the South has had a dramatic turn in, in less than two years. 
Well, actually, yeah, you're right. It started in the uh, after the 2010 election. The Republicans took over control of the General Assembly in 2011. Uh, Governor McCrory was elected in 2012 and took over in 2013. So really, since then, we've seen uh, a dramatic shift to the not just the right, but the far right on a, on a host of issues, everything from uh, remaking our tax policy to favor corporations and the wealthy, uh, the dismantling and privatization of our public education system, the rollback of environmental protections, uh, and maybe most disturbingly, uh, despite all those things, sort of the uh, the uh, backwards march we've taken on uh, voting rights, uh, the way we treat people, uh, low-income families, uh, HB2, a, a blatantly discrimination, uh, discriminatory uh, law that's made us uh, uh, really damaged our reputation around the world and damaged people in North Carolina's lives, the LGBT community. So there's very few uh, uh, parts of the right wing and, and uh fundamentalist playbook that they have not executed in their time in office here, and it's been very disturbing to live in North Carolina. And, you know, we weren't a perfect state by any means, and the folks who were in charge before didn't do nearly enough to help people of color, low-income communities, and and uh, and, uh, and economically depressed areas in our state, but they at least were uh, making an effort, and we have really gone uh, 180 degrees the other way. It's been very difficult to watch. Um, Susanna, how has this played in, you know, oftentimes we hear about the great work of the ACLU, often through the clients um, that you're working with. How do you think kind of this, in some ways, rightward swing, um, and particularly even the body camera law, will affect a lot of the people that you work with and interface with? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in particular with the body camera well, I think it's really going to damage efforts to um, to build relationships and build trust between police and the communities that they serve. You know, we work with a lot of community groups in different um, cities around the state who have been doing good police accountability work, and more transparency um, and accountability in policing is something, you know, that has been a major um, priority of these groups and, you know, focusing on uh, local police department's body camera policies, for example, has been one way that they've been trying to inject more transparency and accountability into policing. And this most recent law really forecloses um, that avenue for them. So, Chris, as as we're getting ready to head into the elections this year, um in your state and then nationally, do you feel like, you know, we, we often heard a lot about the Moral Monday movements. Um, is there a sense that people are, are seeing what's happening in the state and are saying, okay, enough is enough? Well, I certainly uh, hope so, and I do think so. Uh, I think one of the things that has happened here is I went through the list of things that have happened, and that's only a, a short list of the things we've done, or we've, the ways we've gone backwards is that it's been so much so fast that it has affected so many people's lives in so many different ways. And I think the challenge is to make folks understand that all these things are tied together. It's not an accident that we're turning over operation of uh, you know uh, traditional public schools to out-of-state for-profit companies, uh, some of the same people that are profiting off our rollbacks on environmental protection, some of the same people have greater influence over our elections uh, and are happy when it's harder for certain folks to vote. I mean, all these things are tied together, and I do think, particularly in, in in um, uh, the education realm and now with this horrible HB2 that was passed in a rush special session in March that, that I think more people than ever are awakened to what's actually happening to their state and now the, the question is uh, will they uh, will they show up to vote will they get involved and active in these campaigns and uh, I'm optimistic that that will happen 
So we did a poll here on the Leslie Marshall Show, and we asked our listeners um, whether or not they thought that North Carolina's law making police camera footage no longer available to the public. Do they agree or disagree? 12% agreed with the law, 88% disagreed with the law. So, Susanna, what are you going to do? What do you advise people to do moving forward, um, and how can people get engaged? And, Chris, I'll ask you the same question. What should people do, and what what are you doing? I think that's a that's a great question, and you know we're asking people who you know going forward have trouble accessing body camera footage, either body camera footage that they themselves are depicted on, or you know in terms of public release have trouble accessing a court or have trouble getting a court to release body camera footage that they believe shows something in the public interest. We want to hear about those instances um, because we are, you know, going to be working to try and amend this law in the next legislative session, make it more responsive to the people. Um, and we're also encouraging people to download and use the ACLU's mobile justice app, which is something that you can use to record police interactions on your phone. Uh, you have the right to record police interactions as long as you're not directly interfering with police activity, and ACLU's mobile justice app allows you to upload that footage. It comes right here to our office for us to review. And so, you know, this is something that is still a tool for people to use uh, to hold police departments accountable for their actions and to inject more transparency into those interactions, even if we, you know, aren't able to as easily access body camera footage going forward. And then Chris? Well, I guess I would say uh, primarily as we enter this uh, election season, you mentioned there are campaigns coming up. We're going to have millions, tens of millions of dollars in North Carolina spent to tell lies about what's actually happening in our state. And I think it's incredibly important for people whose lives are being affected by these uh, reactionary policies from education to uh, environmental protections. We have people in our state that live beside leaking coal ash ponds at the legislature uh, and the governor just allowed Duke Energy to continue to stay in the ground and leak into the into their drinking water supply. So and the key to all these things is to get people to speak out, uh, to make sure that uh, people know the truth in their communities and their neighborhoods. And get engaged. Uh, and that's right. This is Michelle Jawando, Leslie Marshall, Chris, and Susanna. You were great. We'll bring you back. We'll be right back after the break. This is your host, Michelle Jawando. Always great to be with you on the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, always a really good time and happy to be a part of the Leslie Marshall family. If you want to go ahead and give us a call and join in the conversation, you can give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, Jawando. J-A-W-A-N-D-O. Um, I really appreciated our last segment because I think what people often forget um, is the power, again, even though we talk about politics a lot in this country, we forget the choices of our elected officials. What happens um, when we elect one person or another? And I think what's so interesting about North Carolina, for many of you who have listened to the show before, you know I attended University of North Carolina Chapel Hill for law school. One of the reasons I did that, even as someone who's a proud New Yorker, 
um, is they had an amazing civil rights and public interest clinic. And I knew that all of my life I was going to spend some time working on public interest in these types of issues. And yet, when I got there, I had no idea some of the great work that they were doing. North Carolina was doing early registration, voter registration for high schoolers, um, progressive education reform. And literally, after the legislature changed in 2010, and then with the election of Governor Pat McCrory, um, you saw policy changes that have had a major effect. So a few weeks ago, you remember I had on the show Sarah McBride, who talked a little bit about HB2 in North Carolina and its effect on um, transgender Americans and enshrining discrimination in a in a hurry up session in North Carolina. And then now you see this basically preventing footage of police um, incidents from their body cameras also signed into law. So how many times do we have to enshrine discrimination? And it's important to kind of think about it in this frame, uh, because next week you're going to hear Um, pretty much from Republicans all week. We're going to be talking about it. Um, Leslie's going to be talking about it. I'm going to be talking about it here next week in Cleveland, Ohio, is the RNC. Um, It was leaked earlier today. I think I shared with some of our listeners in the first hour that Governor Mike Pence, who is currently the governor of Indiana, um, has the leak is that he has been selected by President. Oh, nope, nope. Nope, nope. He has been selected by Donald Trump to serve as his vice president. Um, But, you know, in a segment, in a piece that just came out on Think Progress, and I encourage our listeners to go and check it out, is the myth of Mike Pence. Um, I think Mike Pence was presented to the American people um, as someone who's an outsider, but he also understands what happens. And in this piece, you had a number of the Think Progress editors um, basically talk about um, who he is and some of the things he said. Basically, he's saying that, you know, we shouldn't believe in uh, he didn't admit whether or not he believed in evolution or um, as we were debating issues around um, religious liberty and freedom, some of the work that he did in Indiana. Um, and he went to extra lengths to pursue um, basically a vendetta against Planned Parenthood in the state. He called global warming a myth and said the world was cooler than it had been 50 years ago. Um, and he tried to contr- to create a state-controlled media outlet in Indiana. Um, you know, now I'm not one for hyperbole, but I think it is important to recognize who our elected officials are and when they do something we got to believe them we got to know who they are and what they mean and what they say um and i think all of that is incredibly important um as we get even closer to election day then the very next week we will have the democratic national convention in philadelphia 
And I think one of our guests in the earlier segment said it perfectly, that you will never see quite the same contrast as you will between the RNC and the DNC, whether or not you're looking at their platforms. You know, earlier this week, Bernie Sanders endorsed Secretary Clinton um, in New Hampshire and said that basically he would be traveling around the country to make sure that Secretary Clinton becomes president of the United States. I don't think that that happens by accident. We know that it was a hard-fought primary campaign. And yet at a time when we see great division in our country, you see a hard-fought battle between Senator Sanders and Secretary Clinton um, standing together under the unity of of, of the Democrats' banner saying, you know what, we have a vision for this country, a vision of making sure that everyone has a living wage um, and that no one who works should be living in poverty. looking at the full slate of reproductive health and freedom and justice and what that really means um, and making sure that our ideas about equality, particularly in the criminal justice space, are real for real people. Um, That's not an accident. There's a difference there. And it makes us say to one another, are you going to pay attention? Are you going to wake up and are you going to do something about um, your future? I think the members of the Democratic Party are laying out a very different vision than what you're going to see from the RNC. And I think people should just kind of pay attention to that. Not saying what she should do, but you got to pay attention. Um, one of the things that <laughs> uh, Ian Milheiser of Think Progress, going back to Mike Pence for two seconds, uh, Ian Milheiser, Think Progress tweets, Mike Pence says Trump's programs are offensive. He should have deleted this tweet. Now I've got a screenshot. When Governor Mike Pence basically called out Donald Trump when he said calls to ban Muslims from entering the U.S. are offensive and unconstitutional. So, you know, it's interesting you can call out hate when it when it's the right thing to do. And I wonder if we're going to see that same kind of language next week and making sure that we are creating more of an inclusive community for everyone. Um, There are two things that I wanted to flag with our listeners uh, today. Um, And I think it's it should come as no surprise to you that the events of the last week have been difficult for us as a nation. When I went home and talked to my husband and talked to my three little children, um, and I had to talk to them about it because they came into our room and they saw these images on the video and they could tell something was wrong with mommy and daddy. And so you got to figure out how you talk to children about it. And I recognized that I had to speak to them about hope. Now, that might sound crazy because it's been difficult and it's been tough. Um, These issues around police misconduct, our criminal justice system, and the way that bias um, infects our interactions, and even the way that we see each other. Uh, Nick Kristoff in the New York Times opinion pages has a really good piece today, and I encourage those listening to pay attention. The way, unfortunately, black and white see the same issues in this country in some ways are completely different. 
And one of the people that uh, Nick Kristoff quotes, Darren Walker, who's the president of the Ford Foundation, has a great quote. I'm going to read it to you. If America is to be America, we have to engage in a larger conversation than just the criminal justice system. If you were to examine most of the institutions that underpin our democracy, higher education, K through 12 education, the housing system, the transportation system, the criminal justice system, you will find systemic racism embodied, embedded in those systems. And I think if we're honest and we're real, we know that he's telling the truth. Why? Because the data and the facts show us that. They tell us that that is the truth. We see the evidence. We see, unfortunately, the fact that there are disproportionate um, numbers of young people, even children in preschool, who are being suspended at higher rates because they're African-American and Latino. So we have some gaps to, to, to fill in this country, and it's both an education as well as making sure that there's some action. But what I don't want people to do, and this is something that one of my mentors shared, and I'm just going to share it with our amazing listeners here on the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando. That in some ways we are the embodiment of our ancestors walking around. That they couldn't have imagined living in the world that we live. I mean, we are are, are living in a time when potentially there are going to be some men walking and living on the moon. And I think if if we recognize that and we know um, that this is a time of great innovation, then we have to say that these really hard conversations and questions that need to happen, that we can take them on too. The same way we can create new innovation. When I grew up, there was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. These things did not exist. But we are Americans and we innovate and we constantly create. And so we've we've done great things as a country. And I believe, you know what, I have the hope, whether or not you call me naive, call me what you wish, what you want. I believe that we as a country can do better. Why? Because when I look at my three daughters, I know I have no choice but to do it. You know, as a parent of a black child and an American citizen, I am both Afraid, but I am also recognizing that I have a responsibility and a duty to do more. Um, in the next segment, we're going to have Danielle Solomon, who's the director of our 2050 program here at CAP. And she had an amazing piece with one of our colleagues who's also been a friend on the Leslie Marshall Show, Todd Cox. And I'll read this little piece. As parents of black children and American citizens, we are simultaneously scared and enraged. The constant barrage of images of black men being gunned down by law enforcement with seemingly no accountability reinforces what W.E.B. Du Bois called a double consciousness for African-Americans whereby African-Americans live life with two conflicting identities, as the oppressed other and as an American. But as President Obama stated early this week that such shootings are symptomatic of the broader challenges within our criminal justice system, but there is a question that we as Americans must do more. And we can and should be done if we are to make real change and help ensure an end to the senseless and preventable killings. We must mandate bold and aggressive reforms. 
And you know what? We can't tolerate violence against anyone, whether that be violence against law enforcement or abuse of power against fellow citizens. We must change our expectations and demand less violence and more accountability. We must be prepared to use our democratic and political processes to make these changes a reality. We must call on our mayors, our governors, and our elected officials. And me, Michelle Jawanda, will add an addendum, us, the American people, to not allow unlawful behavior. We must demand it, and we must do more. Ladies and gentlemen, our amazing listeners of the Leslie Marshall Show, now's the time. There's no waiting. We are the people we are waiting for. If you believe it and you know it and you're ready to work, pay attention to what's happening in your community. And I tell people, all politics is local. I know we talk a lot on the show about national politics and we talk a lot about presidential politics, but all politics is local. And if we're going to do something and we're going to make the changes that we want to see in our communities, we got to stand up and we can't be afraid of it. We can't be afraid of the really difficult conversations that we have to have with our neighbors. You know, I realize that there are some conversations that I have only with my African-American friends. And you know what? I got to tell my white friends sometimes the way that I'm feeling so that they could understand and they could join me in this fight. We got to start talking with each other. A lot more love, a lot more patience, but some honesty as well. And if we can do that, I know we can figure out a way to move forward together. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great being with you. When we come back after the break, we're going to have Danielle Solomon, the director of the 2050 program here at the Center for American Progress. Join us, and I hope you give us a call. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Joining us now, Victoria Jones from Talk Media News on the line. Victoria, welcome to the show. Always great to be with you. Thank you so much. So is Mike Pence, is this a fake out or what's going on? Well, it doesn't seem to be clear. Apparently, Trump's advisors have told Republican officials that they're preparing to make an announcement with Pence tomorrow morning, according to three people with knowledge of the conversations. However, Trump's been sending conflicting signals, 
And uh, Trump, uh, uh, as recently as sometime this afternoon, has not made a formal offer to the Indiana governor, Mike Pence, according to Republicans familiar with the discussion. And they spoke mid-afternoon today. So it's not clear. And apparently Trump is torn between his gut instincts to get a fiery guy or to follow what the advisors say, which is, you know, go for somebody slow and steady. Right, right. So, you know, one of the other big things that I saw is about to happen, and this is going to rile everyone on Capitol Hill, uh, that apparently 28 classified pages of the 9-11 report are going to be released? It seems so. There are reports to that effect. Uh, although when I was at the White House briefing earlier today and Josh Ernest, the spokesman, wouldn't confirm it, he seemed to be downplaying it a bit. But uh, certainly that is what is being said and that they could be made public as soon as tomorrow, according to multiple sources, with not much in the way of redaction. So these are very important because they contain information about alleged ties between the Saudi government, Saudi officials, and the September the 11th terror attack. Oh, wow. So, it, uh, yeah, and it's very, very interesting. If indeed they do come out tomorrow, uh, the, the question is, the, according to um, former Senator Bob Graham, who chaired the commission uh, who did this, he said, the most important unanswered question of 9-11 is, did these 19 people conduct this very sophisticated plot alone, or were they supported? Mm. And then last but definitely not least, because this affects us, there's apparently an op-ed coming out about the way that the 2016 candidates have really treated the press this year. Yeah, this is an op-ed that's appearing in USA Today. It's written by current White House Correspondents Association President Carol Lee and incoming President Jeff Mason. He's with the Wall Street Journal. He's with Reuters. And so they've written it jointly. I'm, I'm a member of the association, I should say. And they say that they're alarmed by the treatment of the press in this year's election. They say that both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton threatened the press and undermined the First Amendment, saying it's a cornerstone of the democracy. The public's right to know is infringed if certain reporters are banned from a candidate's event because the candidate doesn't like a story they've written or broadcast, as Donald Trump has done. And... Similarly, refusing to regularly answer questions from reporters in a press conference, as Hillary Clinton has, deprives the American people of hearing from their potential commander-in-chief in a format that is critical to ensuring he or she is accountable for policy positions and official acts. They say they can do better. Wow. Tomorrow is going to be a major news day. Victoria Jones from Talk Media News, always great to have you on the show. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you as we head into the final hour. I'm excited about the next two segments. Um, I am always happy to be joined by my colleagues from the Center for American Progress. And in studio with me, we have Danielle Solomon, who is the director of Progress 2050 here at the Center. She tweets at Danny, D A. D A N Y I N D C. Oh, Danny in DC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Danielle, to the show again. Thank you, Thank you for always being here. 
and none other than Sam Fullwood, who is our senior fellow and director of the Leadership Institute here at the Center for American Progress. He tweets at Sam, S-A-M, Fullwood, F-U-L-W-O-O-D. Welcome, Sam, back to the show. Glad to be back with you, Michelle. So if you want to join in the conversation, and I hope you do, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888 Four three, um, for a lot of our listeners, if you um, catch us on Thursdays when I'm a part of the Leslie Marshall family, you know that I talk um, fondly about my time on Capitol Hill. Um, it was an honor and privilege, and Danielle and I actually became friends and colleagues, both working in the Senate. Um, four members, she, Senator uh, Cardin from Maryland, and myself, Senator Gillibrand from New York. But I will tell you, one of the things that often the senators do, and Danielle, you should chime in here, is they take to the floor sometimes with their passion projects or their issue. Um, I know for my boss, we did a lot of stuff on sexual assault, and your boss focused a lot on voting rights. Yep, civil rights, environmental issues because of the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. Um, And this week, something profound pretty much happened in the Senate. Um, Senator Tim Scott, he is one of only two African-American senators, and he's the only black Republican in the body from the state of South Carolina. And this week, um, he launched what he said is uh, a three-part conversation with his colleagues and the American people. Um, and had a really powerful testimony about where we are and what's happening in this country. Um, And I wanted to share that with you guys. Um, Team, can you pull that up? I want to go to a time in my life when I was an elected official and share just a couple of stories as an elected official. But please remember that uh, in the course of one year, I've been stopped seven times by law enforcement officers. Not four. Not five, not six, but seven times in one year as an elected official. Was I speeding sometimes? Sure. But the vast majority of the time, I was pulled over for nothing more than driving a new car in the wrong neighborhood or some other reason just as trivial. You know, we here at CAP did a had a conversation in house about um, Alton Sterling. Uh, one of our uh, junior staffers said, "Look, we we got to have a conversation," and and spurred the institution to action to sit down and have this conversation about not just the incidents of the past week, but kind of where we are as a country. And one of the points that Senator Scott made is a point that we raised in our conversation. And he said, I don't know many African-American men who don't have a very similar story, no matter their profession, no matter their income, no matter their disposition in life. And he asked his Senate colleagues to imagine the frustration, the irritation, the sense of a loss of dignity that accompanies each of those stops. So Sam, you may not know, is also African-American. Danielle is African-American. So I'm going to just ask you guys to share the same way Senator Scott has. What has been your experience 
kind of being um, an African-American in America? And can you speak about kind of the same situation that Senator Scott did um, in a candid way for some of our audience? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. So, well, <laughs> so we're both eager to chime in here. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So I guess uh, from my perspective, I mean, I think one of the most powerful things that Senator Scott shared uh, today was really about the fact that after five years of serving as a United States senator, uh, he was stopped by Capitol Police, unfortunately, and said, and, you know, the officer said to him, you know, I know that pen, but I don't know you. Can I see your ID? And I think that is um, a testament to the fact that even when you are doing everything right, even when you are established, even when you, you know, have money in your pocket, and even when you are not doing anything wrong, you still experience, um, you know, discrimination. For me, I mean, I, I've experienced it uh, when I'm shopping in Bloomingdale's or in Neiman Marcus. Um, those are t the types of experiences I've had. So mm -hmm. I think that that him sharing that story was really meaningful, I think. No, I don't think there's a, a single African-American who hasn't had some kind of an experience or another. Um, you know, I've been stopped um, by the police, um, whether driving or um, one time I remember being stopped when I was in the, what they thought was the wrong neighborhood in, in uh, Wall Street area of New York, and mm -hmm. two cops jumped out of a car. Uh, fortunately, they didn't pull their guns out, and it, they were concerned because I didn't look like I knew where I was going, which was absolutely true. Uh, <laughs> I did not know where I was going. And they didn't believe that I was going where I was actually going. Mm. Um, but it got it got sorted out uh, quick enough. Um, but I think, you know, I think that what is significant about Tim Scott um, making these declarations from the Senate floor is that he is um, – he is an African-American. He's from South Carolina, where those kinds of things we tend to think uh, might be more prevalent than others. But the fact that he is speaking to his colleagues on, right. on the floor of the Senate, right. um, the audience and the, the setting for what he has to say carries a degree of gravitas that my saying it or someone else saying it doesn't seem to have uh, the same kind of, of statement. So it's really, really profound that that Senator Scott is lecturing uh, his colleagues, his primarily Republican colleagues and the nation um, about something that the Black Lives Movement people get condemned for talking about uh, in a very candid way themselves. Mm. I mean, I think uh, just to add to that, I think w what else what else he has done is really, you know, continued the conversation, the conversation that has been you know, waiting to happen. He's she's trying to really ensure that people are talking about it. And by taking it to the Senate floor, it's bringing a whole new national attention to this. That's right. You know, um, we're, we can start the conversation, and I know we'll have to turn to it again after the break. But I think, unfortunately, there's this kind of binary that's that has emerged, that in some ways law enforcement is here and the community is here. And I think in some ways the leadership of the Dallas police chief, being both an African-American man and then leading um, um, a local law enforcement agency kind of into 21st century policing and just really being committed to it and saying, listen, I'm grieving both as a black man and as an officer, um, grieving the loss of my brothers. And that like duality is is human. It is our human nature. It's like we can experience these things together. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, what makes the Dallas incident so tragic is the Dallas Police Department was actually implementing a lot of the things that the Black Lives Movement have been calling for. They increase transparency. They um, release more data. Uh, they have a use of force policy. Uh, he has fired uh, 70 officers for bad action, and he's made it public. He's made an example of the fact that he will not have bad officers on his force. They have a body camera policy. I mean, they were really making strides. And even before um, the, uh, the horrible shooting, you had the police department tweeting pictures of police officers holding signs saying Black Lives Matter and we stand with you. Right. So that's what makes the incident so tragic. You know, and I think it speaks to the fact that his leadership and must be praised in the work that Dallas is doing, but why one officer and one um, location can't just do it by themselves. Right. You know, I think, unfortunately, the, um, the sniper in this incident wasn't even responding to, like, his local community. He was responding responding to images out of Louisiana and Minnesota. I think there are a couple of things that I'd, I'd like to unpack about the Dallas situation, in particular the sniper. One, I I would be very, very cautious about drawing too much import to what um, this, uh, let's, let's allow that it's, it's a tragic thing. It should not have happened, and, and this guy obviously was disturbed. But I don't think that it really does speak to, the, to anything larger than this was a disturbed person. I totally agree. Um, and I think that if we want to draw uh, really strong correlations to the anything else other than maybe the current events were helped tip him over the edge. Another point, though, I would like to make is that in watching the Dallas police officer, in watching the Dallas surgeon who attended to mm-hmm. the uh, the mm-hmm. police officers, and in watching uh, President Obama and Tim Scott, to hear them talk about it in human terms without the rancor and anger is yeah. a significant thing. Yeah. And I think that many people have responded to them because they have come across as human beings. Mm-hmm. I wrote a column about this, and I think one of the real problems that we have with policing is that black men, by and large, are not perceived as equal humans in their interactions with the police when the police stop them. So that there's a fear level there that they don't treat them. They have to be contained rather than... Uh, uh, treated like anybody else. Or, or helped, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Uh there's this contain and control mentality, and that leads to overreaction, and sometimes that overreaction is fatal. So we are in studio with Sam Fullwood and Danielle Solomon. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break with furthering the conversation. Where do we go from here? This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great being with you. I'm excited in studio, two of my friends and colleagues. I was just sharing over the break. It is good to have good friends. Um, Danielle Solomon, the director of the 2050 program here at CAP, and Sam Fullwood, race man, leadership institute director, and senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress. So, Gregory from Ohio, I'm going to bring you into this conversation uh, because you raise a point that I am interested in hearing. Thank you, thank you and your panel. Um, I think, first of all, when you have folks like Joe Walsh 
and Fox News that is putting out uh, comparing Black Lives Matter to the KKK. The history tells you that the KKK at one time was embedded with police. So they had uh, immunity to go in. Remember, uh, they could have stopped that bombing in Birmingham. You also look at history with the killing of Freddie Hampton in, um, in Chicago. Um, I think that a, a lot of this, you look at, you get folks who may have been football players or whatever, may have been picked on in school. They don't do the psychological evaluations. A lot of the cops that, that we have that are pulling over these men, they don't live in their community. Therefore, they don't respect these people. Mm. And when, when you start talking about it, I mean, again, it's, it's just like if you are a dog and someone starts talking to you about cat issues, you're not going to understand. Mm. Mm. Greg, I appreciate, I appreciate your comment. Danielle, you started writing quickly as Greg started to speak. So let me bring you into this conversation. And thank you, Gregory. Thanks, Gregory. No, I think you raise a really important point. I mean, I think when we're talking about policing reform, we should remember the history of policing and how it started in this country. Um, you're absolutely right there. At, you know, slavery, there were slave patrols. And, you know, that's what happened in the South. It wasn't centralized policing in the South. It was uh, slave patrols. And over time and with the passage of constitutional amendments, yes, those slave patrols uh, were removed. But we have to remember that some of those people that participated in slave patrols did go into the centralized police units of what we know today. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say that the KKK is involved with the police today. I don't think that at all. Um, I think the majority of police officers are actually good officers who try to do a good job on a day-to-day -day basis. However, I think you also make a very good point about the fact that um, we need to do a better job of ensuring that police are representative of the communities in which they serve and that police get uh, a proper training and also that there's wellness treatment for police. I mm -hmm. mean, police deal with some of the darkest parts of our society, unfortunately. And we're, you know, usually on wellness treatment for them, it is reactionary. It is not preventative. Okay. And those types of investments in our police officers are necessary if we really want them to interact with our community in a way that is respectful. Um, Michael from the Bronx, my friend, your comment. Hi, thank you all. And I am a black American in New York City, and I have to say, almost identical to the previous call, um, when you have President Obama trying to bridge the gaps and have police and even people of color understand each other, um, and the fact is that, you know, when police engage in such gun violence and multiple um, crimes against you know, people of color, there's never, ever any accountability. He spoke on that. But when you have people like Joe Walsh and even my former mayor, Rudy Giuliani, going on television and implicating that all blacks are criminals, that there are problems, talk about black on black crimes, they are the ones that are fueling the fire. And to me, that is fear mongering and they're placing targets on people like your guests and me. Mike, and you know, is that is criminal. Yeah, you know, I appreciate it, Sam. You yeah, you know, one of the things that I find so um, dispiriting. Uh, I know, Michelle, you want to talk about something more uplifting. But one of the things I find dispiriting about this this current conversation is the timing of it, that it is taking place. I mean, uh, police abuses and such have been going on at heightened awareness in the country for about two years now, uh, going all the way back to um, Michael Brown and such. But to have this conversation in the midst of a presidential campaign 
um, is very dispiriting to me because what what this does is that it heightens people's already polarized view of our society so that you get a guy like Joe Walsh or Rudy Giuliani going on the air for no reason other than uh, political expediency of their own not to contribute anything that is of substance to this conversation Mm -hmm. so that they can espouse these really, really crazy racist views and know that there's an audience out there that's primed for it in an election cycle. I happen to believe that it it will not have any impact on the ultimate outcome, whether Donald Trump gets elected or whether Hillary Clinton gets elected. But I think it does harden people's heart at a time when people like President Obama are trying to tell people, don't be so rigid. You have to see both sides. That's right. That's right. And and not only see both sides, but like we have if we're going to move forward, we like have to do that. Like we cannot kind of sit in our different spaces and just exist there by ourselves. There has to be that kind of conversation. Danielle, you have the last words. No, I completely support everything that you just said, Michelle. I mean, I think the trauma surgeon out of Dallas, Brian Williams, said the right thing, that we are in this together, and people are dying. This violence has to stop, and both sides need to come together, get away from the noise, and talk about really how we move forward as a nation. Danielle Solomon, Director of Progress 2050 here at the Center for American Progress. Sam Fullwood, Director of the Leadership Institute. I can't thank both of you enough. Um, If you are not following them on Twitter, Danielle and Sam both had um, poignant, um, really honest and candid pieces, both as parents, um, as black men in America, um, and are trying to share that as well as give us some recommendations on how we move forward. I told you guys, I'm going to promise... Every time I talk to you, I'm also going to give you an idea about how we move forward because I realize that we have to have the conversation, but we got to have hope and we got to have a path forward. And I'm going to be committed to giving you that every time I'm with you here on the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando. We'll be right back after the break with Erin Carman, the author of the Notorious RBG, to talk about her notorious words this week about Donald Trump. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome back. We are closing out the show with my new piece on the docket. Um, And I think for those who were here last week, I shared that every time Michelle Jawando is going to be a part of the Leslie Marshall family, um, I'm going to bring you every week a little bit more of an insight behind um, what it's like to either be on the Supreme Court, cases around the Supreme Court, cases in our federal or state level. Why? Because courts matter. And I think it is the third branch of government that gets the least attention, um, but it has the biggest impact on our lives. Um, And I love being part of the Leslie Marshall family and being able to bring those conversations to you every week. Um, If you want to join in the conversation, and I hope you do, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7500. Seven five four three. Last half hour coming on home. 
I am super excited because of the guest that we have, um, not just because she is incredibly talented, but she has the it book when it comes to a justice that so many people on the progressive movement, but all over the country and the world really love. And that is Erin Carmone. She is the author of the new, the co-author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Notorious. I feel like we should play the Biggie song. No. Victorious RBG. Erin, welcome. Hi. <laughs> it What's is up? great having you on the show. And if you want to follow her on Twitter, and you should, you can do that at, at IRIN. Erin, this week has been pretty intense when it comes to none other than Justice Ginsburg. Um, having a conversation about, um, in some way, the most notorious Republican candidate that we've ever seen, uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Uh, what are your thoughts? What were you thinking as soon as you saw the comments? Um, I think if you had told me a couple of weeks ago that, that Justice Ginsburg, however notorious she is, was going to get in a war of words with Donald Trump, I would have said you're crazy. Um, <laughs> because as much as, you know, we know her as the notorious, it, it's largely within the scope of the court. It's largely protesting decisions like Shelby County versus Holder gutting the Voting Rights Act or upholding and uh, anti-abortion legislation that she thinks is an affront to women's dignity. And so it was really unusual for her in particular, someone who is usually very, very respectful of the norms of the court, uh, to step out this way. That said, um, she clearly thinks that this is a very serious threat to the country, and she decided in three different interviews mm-hmm. to, ju- to get out there. Of course, she's now said that she regrets uh, saying what she s- said because of her role, but she definitely has not backed away from any of the substance on it. And for our listeners who are uh, just joining us and may not be familiar, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg earlier this week um, in a conversation with a member of the media said, I can't imagine what this place would be referring to the country. I can't imagine what the country would be with Donald Trump as our president. For that country, it would be for years. For the court, it could be, I don't even want to contemplate that. So even as she like backtracks on the statement, um, Mm -hmm. I think what was powerful is the fact that she's pointing to not necessarily the country, but the impact and the legacy of who um, our president is, the legacy that they then set with every Supreme Court justice pick. And right now we're about to hit almost 125 days since the announcement of uh, President Obama's nominee to the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland, and still no hearing or confirmation. We've never passed that threshold. And it seems like if you were ever going to comment, now is a time to comment. Right, right. I think, you know, we're in an extraordinary moment when it comes to the Supreme Court because of the vacancy that you talked about. I mean, Justice Ginsburg was confirmed in 1993 with a 97-3 to vote. Obviously, that included a lot of Republicans. Orrin Hatch was her champion on judiciary. So... Yes, she was stepping out of the norms, but the norms have really changed around her um, with Mitch McConnell saying that this has to be left uh, to the presidential election, thus politicizing it, frankly. Um, And so I think 
she's also the only one of her colleagues that even before these three interviews that she gave in the last week that has said that eight is not a good number. You, you had uh, Justice Breyer also nominated by President Clinton, and you had Samuel Alito uh, both saying it's no big deal to have eight members of the court. But Justice Ginsburg has now repeatedly said that the Senate should hold a hearing, and she think it's contributing uh, to why she chose to spoke out, speak out in this unusual way, because she's angry that the usual norms, which is that a president nominate someone and then there's a hearing and then they have an up and down vote in the committee and goes to the senate and that's it um she thinks that's a threat to the court you clearly know, that's what prompted her remarks no definitely i mean and what i think um, most people don't recognize is they're like oh there's no supreme court justice they can get along um they're fine. We don't really need another voice. But, you know, when you look at the um, 4-4 decision in United States versus Texas, which basically left in place a nationwide injunction blocking President Obama's plan um, to spare more than 4 million um, unauthorized immigrants from deportation and allow them to work here in that country, the impact of having a 4-4 split is more significant than we ever acknowledge because it affects real people. If there's a, a case that makes it up to the Supreme Court, this is a major issue, and yet we don't talk about the real human effects of that kind of split. Right, and I think also it's something that has clearly not really surfaced as an election issue in a, an urgent way, not for lack of activists trying, but when was the last time Merrick Garland was part of the public conversation? I mean, possibly if Justice Ginsburg had limited her comments just to Donald, uh, just to Merrick Garland and not to Donald Trump, it would have helped bring it back into the into the conversation. But it it seems like Republicans are winning when it comes to kind of eclipsing the fact of it, that it's really unusual not to confirm another justice. And it, it's for liberals, it's probably really blunted by the fact that Justice Kennedy joined the Democratic appointees in, in the affirmative action case and in the abortion case. And so it doesn't really feel like, from a liberal perspective, there's anything really wrong with the court. I mean, yes, you mentioned U.S. versus Texas. Um, that's kind of a holding pattern right now. But there are going to be other cases that are just going to be, you know, potentially the country really divided where one circuit says one thing and another circuit says another. And then, you know, my, my colleague Chris Hayes said to me, well, what if there's a, a die-off? You know, what if there's another, what if there's a divided government and there's another vacancy? And uh, I think I think Dahlia Lithwick said something like, yeah. can it be Justice Kagan under a stool saying, just alone, the only person on the court saying, I'm, it's okay, everything's fine, everything's fine. I can figure it out. And, and for our listeners who may not be aware, uh, Justice Ginsburg is 83, Justice Kennedy is about to turn 80, and Justice Breyer is preparing to turn 78. The average age typically of when a justice retires on the Supreme Court is around 79, so we're already pushing it, and the untimely death of Justice Scalia was unexpected. He was not even someone that they thought wouldn't be on the court um, for some time, so we are in in a potential window in space where we could see some of the most significant changes on the Supreme Court that we've seen, I don't know, ever? Absolutely. I mean, the court has been veering to the right increasingly for several generations, actually, but really intensifying with the fact that, that uh, you know, the, the 
more moderate Republicans like Sandra Day O'Connor being replaced by the likes of Samuel Alito, that that's a dramatic difference. And that's that's actually how we got the notorious RBG was Mm -hmm. decisions in which because she, you know, there's a great book, Sisters in Law, by by Linda Hirschman that chronicles how Sandra Day O'Connor would actually first of all, had a personal friendship with Justice Ginsburg, but also often crossed the aisle, so to speak, um, to broker compromises, mm-hmm. particularly when it came to women's rights. But now the court is much more polarized. Uh, you have four moderate liberals and uh, you know three very, very conservative justices who are probably more conservative than the liberals are liberal, and then mm-hmm. one justice who's more unpredictable. Um, but everything is up for grabs every single time i think she has said that and 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 everybody knows that and to the extent that never trump has not gotten any traction and and you know i i literally just interviewed a pro-life activist who said you know that she really likes that donald trump has spelled out that he's going to appoint pro-life justices and usually they dance around it and they say they want strict constructionists it's even that is so unprecedented for 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 people to comment yep Everything about the Trump campaign is unprecedented, but I think to the extent that you're seeing even conservatives who find him abhorrent not abandoning him, it's because of the Supreme Court. Because whoever gets to fill one seat, basically... That is not, I mean, especially if it's if you yep. get to flip a seat. And this is the Leslie Marshall Show. You are listening to Erin Carmone, co-author of the New York Times bestselling book, Notorious RBG. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Michelle Jawando. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show coming to you as we close out the last three hours. Always great being with you on um, these Thursdays. We have some of the best listeners in the country, and I appreciate you sticking with us. Excited that we have on the phone Erin Carmone. She is the co-author of New York of the New York Times bestselling book, The Notorious RBG. So why don't you tell our listeners who, who may may or may not be as familiar with your book, why you decided to write it, um, and why right now? So my co-author, Shauna Knizhnik, was a second-year law student when she was furious at the Shelby County decision, which gutted the uh, Voting Rights Act, and it was Justice Ginsburg's dissent from the bench, um, a very unusual move for a justice, usually something they do only when they're very upset inspired her to start the notorious RBG Tumblr. Um, the idea was to celebrate her and to share with people the fact that she had had a long career as a civil rights activist, that she was a litigator, co-founder of the Women's Rights Project, who actually transformed, excuse me, the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, who transformed women's status under the Constitution by winning a series of cases at the Supreme Court. So. It was a tongue-in-cheek joke, but we've then, uh, you know, it sort of caught on. All of a sudden, there are RBG uh, 
tattoos, there's nail art, and we thought it was a great opportunity to tell people the story of a woman who's really lived an extraordinary life, who's overcome really significant hurdles um, from tragedy in her family to discrimination on the basis of gender, on the basis of being a mother, uh, had many doors slammed in her face, but prevailed uh, to fight for others from her the, high, the position of the highest court in the land. You know, this um, book and, and even the notorious RBG, there's now mugs and T-shirts. Did you expect it was going to take hold in pop culture the way that it did? I, I think when Shauna started it, she did not realize how big it would get, <laughs> um, especially this week. It's been kind of crazy from the Associated Press to the White House um, to the White House press spokesperson, um, it, it's definitely hit critical mass, uh, this whole notorious thing. There's also You Can't Spell Truth Without Ruth. Um, it goes <laughs> on and on. Um, so, you know, as we get ready, we're headed into the RNC and the DNC conventions. And one of the things that I've been sharing is that I think um, the Supreme Court and issues around courts, whether we're talking about state or federal, have always been more important and talked about um from conservatives, it seems, it seems. And here at CAP, one of the things that we're trying to do is kind of elevate that conversation, um, so to speak, for progressives. With the deadlock and the obstruction around Merrick Garland, um, I expect that we're going to hear more about this probably than we ever have. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the conversation is changing for progressives around the court? Well, like I said, I, I think for, for progressives, it's, it's probably hard to rally people right now on the court, considering that it was a term that was less bad for progressive causes than many people expected, um, simply because of the untimely death of Justice Scalia. Um, but you're right. I mean, this is a, this is a motivating issue for conservatives, but it should be a motivating issue for anybody who cares about the country's future, because as you know, the Supreme Court has an enormous amount of power. They are the last call, and they're dealing with questions of uh, executive power, civil liberties, racial justice, women's status, and, and, and reproductive freedom. Um, so it's, it's certainly something that, regardless of your p- political affiliation, is important to pay attention to and, and to, uh, you know, advocate for uh, respect for it. You know, as we are kind of dealing with, um, I think, a lot of tragedy um, in this country, obviously related to the deaths of Alton Sterling, Philando Castillo, and then the tragedy in Dallas. Um, one area where the court really hasn't um, made any gains, and in fact, uh, Justice Sotomayor had a stinging dissent this year in the kind of criminal justice space, and even quoted people like ta Coates and Michelle Alexander and spoke about double consciousness, referencing um, one of, for many African Americans, which is required reading, which is W.E.B. Du Bois and the Souls of Black Folk. Um, what does that mean that we are dealing on, on, on one hand um, with seeing this tragedy play itself out and the way that systemic racism continues in some ways? We see it more in the criminal justice system than in other spaces, but it's apparent throughout. And then seeing the court, particularly in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, kind of going in the opposite direction. Um, has that been something that you've thought about or considered or talked about? Well, of course, um, Justice Ginsburg joined Justice Sotomayor's dissent 
in that case that you're talking about, except for that one portion in which Justice Sotomayor spoke really personally and from the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know why she didn't join that part, but one reason could have been that Justice Sotomayor really wanted to speak in the first person about her experience as a mm-hmm. prosecutor mm-hmm. and what it's taught her about the application of justice. But I think in both cases, you know, and by the way, the reason that Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg and separately Justice Kagan dissented in that case is because the tie-breaking vote was a Democratic appointee, Mm -hmm. Justice Mm -hmm. Stephen Breyer. So this is certainly, you know, criminal justice reform. We talk a lot about how it's a bipartisan issue in terms of Republicans uh, joining Democrats on it, but it's also the case that that many uh, people who, you know, could be called liberals or are often on, you know, join with conservatives on it in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but more broadly, I think, you know, that, that was a really remarkable dissent from Justice Sotomayor, uh, who my co-author Shauna has nicknamed Sonia from the block. Um, and, <laughs> Which and, and, is picking up on the Jennifer Lopez song, Jenny for right. the Block, just for yeah. those who needed the pop culture reference. Mm-hmm. I'm available to help you on Supreme Court and pop culture. Thank you. Both, both, <laughs> both women uh, from the Bronx, very mm-hmm. proud of being from the Bronx and of Puerto Rican Puerto heritage. Puerto Rican descent, that's right. Um, but, but, you know, the, the larger point here, I think, is that both of these women, are Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg, are engaged in a project of trying to speak outside of the court's normal audience, uh, which is often just to other lawyers and judges, as you well know. But because of the enormous impact of the Supreme Court, the great power of it, they, I think, are both engaged in this effort to draw more people in, whether that's by quoting Ta-Nehisi or citing Ta-Nehisi Coates, or whether it's by actions that lead to her being nicknamed the notorious RBG. I think they're saying, listen up. This is this affects everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, Erin Carmone, you have been a wonderful guest. If you don't have the book, I encourage you to go and pick it up. She is the co-author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Notorious RBG. You can find her on Twitter at I-R-I-N. Thank you again. Thank you. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. So, folks, this is the end of three hours. It has been wonderful to be with you. Had an opportunity to talk a little bit from my heart today um, and kind of share how I'm processing the last uh, few weeks. Um, I appreciate this platform. I appreciate our callers. I know we weren't able to get to everyone today, um, but we had a lot of great guests and tons of things to talk about. But I will tell you that being on the Leslie Marshall Show and having the opportunity to talk to you has has been and will continue to be an honor and privilege. I promise to try to get you the best information every week to bring you um, guests and conversation um, that should make you take pause, maybe think differently, um, consider a varying viewpoint, um, and push yourself to figure out how you get engaged. This is your democracy and we got to do more to make it our own. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. You can find me at Twitter at Michelle Jawando. Always great to be with you, and I'll be back next week. Take care.